This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my 43 years of nursing experience to help you understand what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York City and here to ask the questions that you may have. We are both here because we believe that the more you know, the better prepared you are to make difficult decisions. So please relax, get yourself a beverage and maybe something to eat because you'll be here a while. You know, tea, pie, (laughs) chips, I don't know, whatever you like. And thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, we have our recipe of the week from Charlie. In the second half, I'm going to be talking about death as part of our Last Hours of Living series. And in our third half, Charlie's going to report about what else, but how to kill a vampire. Good evening. (laughs) Charlie, what do you have for our first half this week? Well, there is a passage from the book of Genesis 25... 29 through 34. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Wow, for some stew and bread. Yes, but in Jewish tradition, it said that the lentil stew Jacob cooked was meant for his father Isaac, who was mourning the death of his father Abraham. Jacob and Esau's grandfather. Lentils are a traditional mourner's meal for the Jews. In The Legend of the Jews, Volume 1, Rabbi Louis Ginsburg explains why. He says, The round lentil symbolizes death. As the lentil rolls, so death, sorrow, and mourning constantly roll among men, from one to the other. Lentils are also smooth without openings or mouths meant to symbolize the mourner's sorrow, rendering them unable to speak. So our recipe this week is for lentil soup, to warm your heart and comfort your soul. Oh, that was interesting. Yes. Thank you. And I learned something new today. Judy, 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 which Carrie Wright never said. Now, for a link to this recipe and additional resources for this program, go to our webpage. We hope you will follow us on Facebook and Instagram, as well as remember to rate and review this podcast. As a nonprofit organization, we are dependent on people's kindness and always appreciate your donations. Please go to our webpage to donate in support of our work, www.everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies.org. Marianne? So we've been talking about the last hours of living as the peri-death period, which specifically encompasses the symptoms and experiences right before death occurs, the actual death, 
and then the care of the body after death. Just the way birth is described is the perinatal period. There's that period all around the birth of the baby. So, so far we've talked about all the symptoms that can occur in the last weeks of life right up to the moment of death. And many people have really not been with someone who's been actively dying and don't know what to expect. And some people don't even know how to know if somebody's died. I, I can remember a, a patient's wife saying to me, well, but how will I know when he's dead? So I thought we should focus on that this week. Even though no two deaths are alike, it helps to have an idea of what the final stage of life may be like and the symptoms that you might see during this period. When a person enters the final stage of the dying process, two different dynamics are at work. On the physical plane, the body begins the final process of shutting down, which will end when all the physical symptoms cease to function. Usually this is an orderly, progressive series of physical changes that are not medical emergencies. These physical changes are the natural way in which the body prepares itself to stop. The most appropriate kinds of responses are comfort-enhancing measures. Over the last 10 shows or so, we've gone over these changes and, and what you can do and how you can respond and how you can be helpful. The other dynamic of the dying process is an emotional and spiritual in nature. The spirit of the dying person begins the final process of release from the body, its immediate environment, and all of its attachments. This release also tends to follow its own priorities, which may include the resolution of whatever is unfinished. The most appropriate kinds of responses to the emotional and spiritual changes are those that support and encourage release and transition. When a person's body is ready and wanting to stop, but the person is still unresolved or not reconciled with important issues or relationships, the person may tend to linger to finish whatever needs finishing. On the other hand, when a person is emotionally and spiritually resolved and ready for this release, but his or her body has not completed its final physical process, the person will continue to live until the physical shutdown is completed. The experience that we call death occurs when the body and the spirit complete the natural process of shutting down, reconciling, and finishing. These processes need to happen in a way that's appropriate and unique to the values, beliefs, and lifestyles of the dying person. So we've completed our discussions about the first stage of the peri-death experience and now ready to move on to the second phase, which is death. So signs of death include that the heartbeat and the breathing stop. Um, it can include the release of the bowel and bladder. Eyelids are slightly open and not blinking. Pupils are fixed and dilated, meaning that they're not going in and out. You know, that black part of your eye isn't going in and out. And instead, um, they're really wide open. That black part's really wide open. Um, a drop in body temperature. And as the, as the blood settles, the body color turns to sort of a waxen paleness. The jaws relax, slightly open, and there's no response. They're, they're not responding to you. These signs do not incur, occur in order, 
It can take a few minutes for the body to completely stop. If the death occurs at homes, remember that this is not considered an emergency, but you've probably been given a number to call to inform the hospice staff or their physician of the death. The body does not have to be moved immediately, so don't feel rushed or pressured to act. Now, when the death has occurred, um, this is the part where in the post-death care that involves preparing the body for the morgue or the funeral home and making decisions about autopsy and burial. Hopefully, if you've been uh, listening to us all along, these decisions about autopsy and burial, hopefully you've made some decisions about that and maybe even pre-planned it, which is really a wonderful gift that you can give your family. And as we continue our series with the, with this peri-death care, we're going to go into autopsies and funerals and all of that. But think about these things and, and hopefully talk to and prepay what it is that you want. When death has occurred, the blood will begin to pull pool in the areas of the body closest to the ground. You know, this is gravity. So if your loved one was on their back when they died, the blood will settle um, on the back and the buttocks, the back of the legs. And there'll be a purple-red discoloration of the skin. And it's real obvious when you see this, and it's a result from the blood accumulating in those dependent vessels. And this has a name. It's called liver mortis. The body begins to cool, and this fall in body temperature after death is called agal mortis. Initially, at the time of death, the muscles of the body relax. But within two to six hours, rigor mortis begins. And if you've watched any crime show anywhere along the way, you, you always see that the coroner comes to the crime scene, and they do a few things that that give a approximate time of death. And so what they're looking for is things like rigor mortis. You know, you know it doesn't start till two to six hours after the person's died. So if there's no rigor mortis, they've probably been dead less than two hours. So rigor mortis is the stiffening of all muscle groups, beginning with the eyelids, then the neck and the jaw, during the next four to six hours, it'll spread to the other muscles, including internal organs. Rigor mortis will usually last between 34 and 48 hours, depending on the temperature where your loved one is. After this time, the muscles will relax, and there's that secondary slackness that will develop. So first, the body is slack, and then starting at about two hours, rigor mortis steps in, and in about four to six hours, other parts of the body become stiff. And then the whole body is stiff between 34 and 48 hours. And then after that, it becomes slack again. So care of the body at this point um, should include closing the eyes. And if you have a hospice nurse who's coming in, the hospice nurse will come in and close their eyes, they'll put the dentures in, and they do that because, as I said, there's going to be that rigor mortis. They're not going to be able to get anything in the mouth or out of the mouth or whatever, so they'll do that then while the body is still slack. And they'll elevate the head of the bed so that the blood doesn't drain into the face and discolor it. 
Um, and especially if there's going to be embalming and a funeral, the undertaker's job will be much easier if you put, you know, like some pillows under their back so that their head is up so that the blood drains not in the face so that it'll, things will look better when the um, undertaker does their job. If there's an NEIVs or catheters, those will come out. Um, usually the physical environment is cleaned up, straightened, you know, all those um, bandages and things that have been laying around that have been used. Um, you're probably tired of seeing them and they're not needed anymore. So those will get cleaned up. Um Regarding jewelry, if there's a wedding ring that's staying with your loved one, you should secure it with a piece of tape because that'll hold it on. But if jewelry is not staying, this is the time to take it off and you can give it to the person that it's going to or whatever. But if you, if it's not staying with the body and being buried or cremated with the body, take off the jewelry before they go with the undertaker. Unless there are religious customs that say otherwise, your loved one's body should be bathed in plain water and dried. Um, usually a bed protector will be laid under the body in case there's any more leakages from anywhere. Uh, if there have been, if there are wounds that have dressings on them, usually the hospice nurse will replace those dressings with clean ones. Uh, the hair is combed, um, extremities are straightened because, like I said, they're going to start to get stiff and then they're going the undertaker is going to have to wait 34 to 48 hours in order to be able to, to change position. Um, if you want to participate in the preparation of your loved one for the funeral home, you really should. I've, uh, as you know, I've worked as a, as a hospice nurse. I've pronounced probably more than my share of people dead. And I've done this, this care that I'm talking with you about. Whenever I go in, because a lot of times if I was on call, I wouldn't have ever met the person before. I'd always introduce myself. I don't know if the person is still there. I don't know if they can still hear me. Um, there's this thought that a lot of hospice nurses sort of subscribe to is that the body, the the soul needs a place to exit. So sometimes we'll crack the window just to give the soul or the spirit the that place to go to. Um, and then I always ask the family members, do you want to help me bathe the body? And some people will say, no, I'll be in the kitchen with a daiquiri. And some people will say, yes, I'd like to be able, I'd like to do that. It's sort of that final gift, that final time that you're going to touch that body that's still a little bit warm and give that final gift. I've had people who've wanted particular clothes put on their loved one. I had one woman who wanted these silk pajamas put on her mother. And generally what we'll do is we'll kind of cut those up the back and put them on because it's really hard to manipulate a body that's no longer living. But uh, she refused to let me cut them to put them on her. And she insisted that these pajamas go on her. And let me tell you, um, that is not easy. Um, there's something, I don't, 
you know, if somebody's sleeping, they seem to weigh less than a, a dead body because there's just a weight to it. Um, so think about what it is that you would like put on the person, your loved one who's going to be going to the funeral home. Um, but I would suggest picking something that's easily put on or um, cut it, you know, allow the the nurse to cut it up the back so that it easily goes on. Um, there's a lot of comfort to giving that last bath. And it's really a gift to be able to touch them one last time in that way. When your loved one's body and the room's has been prepared, you know, clean up, family and others can come in to say their final goodbyes. Within the confines of cultural, personal, and religious practices, the family can be invited to touch or hold the loved one's body and to take all the time that they need. This time spent with um, the deceased can help to promote that transition from acute grief to a new stage of the grieving process. And it kind of helps to give you that sense that yes, yes, they really are dead. Accepting the reality of the death is considered to be the first task of mourning necessary for working through the grief. Seeing the dead body helps the bereaved see the reality of the death and to say goodbye. The body should not be transported to the morgue or the mortuary until the family is prepared and they have given their permission. One of my best friends, Charlie, I don't know, 10 years ago, just suddenly dropped dead. I mean, literally, she was out in her garden working, went in um, and dropped dead. And when they found her, when she didn't show up for work, they, they went looking for her because she never not showed up for work. Her gardening gloves were on the counter. There was a glass of water and she was on the floor. And her daughter, who was, I had cared for her a lot when we lived in New Hampshire and she was at our house or when my kids were growing up at, at their house. Um, her daughter called me and, and said, this is what happened. And it was just unbelievable because I talked to her almost every day after I dropped the kids off at school. And her, her daughter said, you know, she's, she's at, they took her wherever they take people who drop dead suddenly and they're going to do a autopsy. And she said, and I, I guess we'll just have her cremated. And I said, well, are you going to go see her body? She's like, oh no, I'm not going to go do that. And I said, you know, hon, I think it's really important that you do because last time you saw your mom, she was alive. She was healthy. She was looking great. And now she's dead. And that's going to be hard for your head to kind of comprehend. And if you don't see her and see her as a dead body, your brain is always going to wonder, is it true? And your brain needs to know that it's true. And she says, I, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, I'll get on a plane and I will come do it with you. And she said, okay, I'll come. Because they were living in Florida then. And so I I got on the plane and I went there and I talked to the, the funeral home who was going to lay her out so that her daughter could go see her. And I said to her daughter, I said, I'm, I'll go in first and make sure everything's okay. And then you can, you come in. Okay. And, um, my friend had really, really, really long hair and they had, after the autopsy, just had to like 
draping down the back like a waterfall off the back of the of the table they had her on and um i thought oh god that's she she'd die if she saw her hair looking like that so i took her hair and kind of fixed it the way that she would have it and um caught her looking the way i know that her daughter would expect her to look and her daughter came in and and we talked and she held her mother's hand and she touched her hair and it was that beginning of that healing of oh my god yes this really did happen and she looked at her mom and she said well now i know she didn't commit suicide because you know it was sort of the thought like why would somebody drop dead and i said how do you know and she said because her roots are showing and if she was going to kill herself she would have dyed her hair first and i started laughing i said you know what you are absolutely right so in that sense that was a very healing thing in that it kind of got rid of a fear or a thought that her daughter had so family's wishes should be respected regarding their presence their presence during the removal of the body. And let me tell you, this is a really hard time for people, particularly if your loved one is at home and they're leaving their house for the last time. There's few things that are more profound than the undertaker, the funeral home coming and, and taking your loved one, putting them in the hearse, and then watching that hearse drive away because it's very final. It's like you know this is it. They're not coming back. Many people don't want to watch that hearse drive away. And that's completely understandable. I've had a lot of families who say, I'm not going to stay. I can't stay and watch this. And I'll say, I'll, I'll stay until they're gone. Don't worry. So what happens from here is the road of grief, saying goodbye, and often making a lot of decisions. Be kind to yourself during this phase. This is a very difficult time. So Charlie, what questions can I answer for you? I don't have any questions. I mean, gosh, Marianne, I mean, gosh, it sounds like I'm three years old. It's, yeah, I mean, no, you, you just like brought something up and then you explained it. I mean, wonderfully. Um, I, I would like to, um, you reiterate what you had said about just, you know, being prepared. I mean, somebody dies and you said about the funeral arrangements. Mm -hmm. Again, just we always talk about preparation. So I just really hope that um, it, it, I, I cannot emphasize enough. Be prepared. Please don't make, you know, decisions about, you know, funeral arrangements when you are in the middle of dealing with someone who just died people react differently, but in some level, it, it is a type of crisis situation. You don't want to be making decisions in a crisis situation. And let's face it, people, funeral homes will take advantage of that and charge you, I mean, the prices they want, but you may not have the wherewithal at that moment when someone has died you know, to make smart choices about, you know, finances, you know, financing a, a, a casket, a, a funeral home, arrangements and all that. So please prepare in advance. Take care of all of that in advance. You know, when your thoughts are, are clear, yeah, when your thoughts are clear and you can make, you know, clear-headed decisions. 
And even better for the person, for all of us, the gift that we can give our kids is to, you can, you know, join a cremation society, you can prepare, prepay for a cremation or yep, a, exactly. you know, yep. whatever it is yes. you want. Yeah. Go do it because then that way you have it just the way you want and you can tell them no refunds, no, no, they can't trade in that fancy at fancy um, coffin that you purchase for a refund so they spend less money, you know, if you have rotten kids or something. No, you know, you tell the funeral director, nope, this is how it has to be. No changes. Yeah, that's it. And then that way you get it exactly the way you want it. <laughs> and then and then also, too, it's like, you know, what, what you were saying about, you know, take that time to be with that person. Maybe, you know, yeah. you'll want to bathe the person. And just, you know, the basic nuts and bolts, you know, you know, elevate the, the you know, um, you know, your loved one's head so that the color drains from their head and it just look more, well, normal. Yeah, just little things like that. This this is the time for you to grieve, not to be running around and being told, oh, well, you need this. You're going to need that. Oh, don't you want that floral arrangement? And without even thinking and just, you know, accept everything and then get socked with a bill. On top of everything you're going through. Yeah, this, this is the time for you to be with, you know, your loved one. So, you know, speaking of people who've just died, um, isn't there like a tradition or something of, of people being buried and then coming back to life? And they come back as vampires, right? Well, yes, Marianne. Funny you should say that. Um, yes. Now, as every school-aged child knows, they know two things. There is a Santa Claus, and to kill a vampire, you must pierce it with a stake. But elementary schools... Like a, hmm? like a porterhouse stake? Well, 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 if it's completely frozen and chiseled to a point, yes. But I would recommend the old-fashioned ones, you know, like used to be used on railroads. S-T-A-E-E. And make sure it's made of iron and well done. So, but elementary schools are seriously remiss when they fail to address that those sharp objects like sickles and scythes were buried with certain dead bodies believed to be either vampires or corpses, which, if a corpse, people feared would turn into vampires. So, how do you kill something dead? I know what you're thinking. Buffy, we need a steak. Well, yes, but wait, there's more. The traditional fear is that those who have been dead for several months, and it's mostly men, would come back to Earth talking, walking, infesting villages, sucking the blood out of the relatives, yada, yada, yada. Bloating and consequent disturbance of the burial site is interpreted as a dead person trying to get out of his grave. The sickle is expected to prevent this by puncturing the body. People save themselves by impaling vampires, cutting off their heads, tearing out their hearts, or if you're on a budget, buying sharp objects with a corpse. Such as sickles to penetrate the skin if the body bloats sufficiently while transforming into a vampire. Different cultures use different approaches to prevent bloating of the body, such as putting sharp iron objects on it and placing a sickle or sickles, depending on your budget, around the body and on the neck, which deterred movement and avoided creation of a vampire. 
From Forensic Pathology and the European Vampire, published by Indiana University Press. Frequently, sharp objects have been buried with the body to puncture it if it should bloat. While Richard Bell describes sickles buried with bodies to prevent the swelling of the body. Norbert Reiter says that the Slavs buried bodies with a sickle around the neck of the corpse so that the vampire would cut his throat if he left the grave, which takes the concept of tough love to a new height. From Romania, an informant says that the sickle must be driven into the corpse's heart, which contradicts Buffy the Vampire Slayer, though Buffy gained far more points in the Nielsen TV ratings. Such sickles have been found in graves dating back to the 9th century. Wow. Yep. Additionally, there is mention of various iron implements like knives and swords and axes, oh my, to prevent the return of the soul into the body. The iron was heavy, which helped for holding the body down and sharp for puncturing it. There were also stories of sharpened stakes that had been driven into graves so that the body might be punctured if it tries to come to the surface. It must be noted that such puncturing of dead bodies is not limited to ancient past. It's an accepted procedure, common now as before and for some of the same reasons. The Jonestown Massacre in Guyana, for example. Marianne, do you remember the uh, Jonestown Massacre? Yeah, that was Kool-Aid. Yeah. Is that the Kool-Aid That's it, uh, about drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, don't drink the Kool-Aid. That's it. That's it. Well, in Jonestown, they did. After the massacre, local doctors were sent in to puncture the bloated corpses. Now, did they do that to prevent them from becoming vampires or because they were bloated? It, It was something about the bloating and then just the thought of all that blood being bad blood and you know there were just superstitions because i mean this was out this this was out in in the jungle so the idea of a corpse coming back i mean hung in there with some of some of the locals out in the jungle yeah wow now while puncturing a body would have an immediate effect on its condition it would not end the process of the change to a vampire think of how many times in the history of vampirism from Dracula to Blackula, we find that bodies were dug up repeatedly and each time killed in some new way until eventually someone, maybe the funeral industry, looking to create a new source of income, came up with cremation. In the film version of the play Dracula, starring Frank Langella, Marianne, do you remember? Uh, oh, he's so sexy. I'm going to take that as a yes. So, <laughs> in the film version, Dracula is exposed to sunlight and burnt to a crisp. You know, the way I like my bacon. So, to recap, to kill the undead, a stake through the heart, topped off with a sickle or scythe around the stomach and chest to puncture the body. Remember to add a sickle around the neck in case a vampire wants to peek outside. On our website, everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one dies.org. You will see a picture of a vampire killing kit circa 1800, but there are no stakes. It's, but only stakes, no sickles. I mean, what's up with that? 
I thought that kit was really cool looking. Listen, it is really cool looking, but it's it's not an authentic vampire killing kit. How can you have a kit like that without stakes? Oh well, shoot! Wait a minute, Marion. No, say that. Say that again, please. Uh, you, I saw the kit, and it's really good. I saw that kit, and it really looks cool. I liked it. Well, it really looks cool. And what was it on the market for? Fourteen thousand dollars. It's really cool. It has um, it has stakes, but there are no sickles. And you know, this is a big thing with the sickles to keep this thing dead, to make sure it's dead. You know, you are killing the undead. Well, maybe that's maybe that's like an add-on. You know, like when you go shop at Amazon, you can you know add certain things on. Maybe it was an add-on. You know, I never they couldn't afford it, mm-hmm. or or they or they used all the sickles, and all that were left were the stakes. You shouldn't the, be so judgy, Charlie. You know, that's why you're the brains of the outfit. You can you can see out, yeah. outside the box, and in so this case, speak. outside the the box is is the coffin. <laughs> so, with that image in mind, please stay tuned for, <laughs> for the unending escapades of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete, remembering Marlena Dietrich's edict, when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we're going to see you next week, hopefully. Remember, there is more than one way to kill a vampire. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, and every day is a gift. Goodbye. Bye. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.